Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Our text today is in 1 Corinthians. And we're following up all the way through 1 Corinthians just like we have been. And and we're going to be starting at verse 12. So if you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians and starting in verse 12, or in in chapter 12, and, and starting in verse 12. And we'll go ahead and stand once more for the reading of God's Word. And we do this um, not because we are trying to, you know, be a legalistic kind of church, but we do it because the, the Bible actually tells us to, to, to continue in the public reading of Scripture. And, uh, and so that's why we do this as, as a, a, a group. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says... Because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less, any the less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members each one of them in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you in prayer and we thank you for your word again. Lord, this is the only way that we can truly know you and know your will by, by, by the reading of your word. And we thank you for, for, for that ability to do so. We thank you for your son dying on the cross for our sins, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our helper. He's not a genie in a bottle, but he is, he is our helper who helps us understand these things and understands your will. And it, it's in, in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen. All right. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the word body, which is soma in the original Greek, He uses it ten times in this passage. And in the next passage, he uses it another eight times. So when this happens in in Scripture, it's usually because there's a very fundamental or foundational point being made. And it's in our best interest to pay close attention to the doctrine that's being taught by the author, who, as we know, is the Holy Spirit. And it's an undeniable fact that out of all of God's creation, the human body is the most incredible as well as the most complex. Every member of the body has a specific role to play in the life and function of the individual image bearer that God has created. And, And despite its complexity, 
every member of the body is working perfectly in unison, in unity with one another. And that's how God designed it to be. That's how it has to be. You could even say that they rely on each other to function properly. If you cut off someone, if you cut off the hand, it will cease to function in the manner in the manner that it was uh, designed. And while the hand that were cut from the body, uh, or the hand that was cut from the body, would could no longer live, it would it would die, and it, it would no longer serve the purpose or function that it was designed for. And of course, this sounds like basic theology. We learn these things at a very young age before we can even speak, um, and it's an obvious statement. But in the context that Paul is using, is presenting it to the Corinthians, it's quite profound. You see, he's actually not doing anything differently than the way Jesus taught using parables. He takes an idea that everyone is so familiar with and he uses it in a way that only he who has ears can hear and would understand. Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, salt is good. And absolutely no one would disagree with this statement, especially in first century Palestine. But what followed after that statement didn't make any sense to most of those who heard it. Have salt in yourselves and you are the salt of the earth. No one is naturally familiar with these ideas, with these, these things. And similarly, in the Gospel of John, Jesus made another statement. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, we know what that means today, but the natural man who originally heard it, it sounded barbaric. Uh, so much so that the followers of Jesus walked away from him that day. But when, speaking of the same statement that he made, when he asked his chosen 12 if they wanted to go also, Peter responded in this way, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So you see, most of those who heard this, these words from our Messiah, they were disgusted and taken back and appalled, and they walked away, while those he chose, as he stated himself, heard the words of eternal life. Turn in your Bibles. We're going to stay in 1 Corinthians for now, but we're going to go back to chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 21. We're going to kind of make our way through uh, a little bit of chapter 1 and, and then into chapter 2. But starting in chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then drop down to verse 27. This is the same thought that, that Paul is carrying on. Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. So the natural mind is unable to truly grasp these things spoken. This wisdom of God, the, the words of eternal life. 
And Paul continues the same thought through into chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 4. Take a look at this. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. What kind of words of wisdom is he talking about? He's talking about wisdom that the natural mind would understand. He continues, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he's not saying he came in with all these spiritual magician magic tricks or, or, or power in that form. He's saying that his message and his preaching contained the Spirit and contained, and contained power. His message and his preaching of the gospel were not such that would appeal to the natural mind but only to the mind of those taught by the Spirit. Now, let's look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For, he, for, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul just laid out how this entire letter should be appraised. You can't look at these things that are being taught from a worldly perspective. They have to be spiritually appraised. But this is impossible without having the mind of Christ, without being a part, a, a, a part of His body, His true church. This would be impossible without having the mind of Christ. Um, I'm sorry, I just repeated that same thing. Now, now, let's dig deep into chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Back to, back to chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, this first verse of our passage lays out a very foundational doctrine that the Corinthians needed to understand. And unfortunately, the doctrine that uh, so many Christians today seem to have forgotten or, or simply, possibly, unable to even spiritually appraise them. You see, there, there are three subjects in this verse. The first is the body. Then you have the members. And then there is Christ. In this verse, Paul is teaching that Christ, like the body, is made up of many members. Okay, so we have that, that, that parable of sorts, that illustration of a human body that people can understand. And now Paul is breaking it down and saying, so is Christ this same way. Christ, and what's profound about it is that Christ is not only with his church as the bridegroom, He's not just sitting on the sidelines rooting us on. He is literally in the church. He is the head of his body. And I think we hear this so often that it almost 
it almost becomes mute, it becomes meaningless. But we have to understand exactly how Christ fits in with his church. They are inseparable. They cannot be, they cannot be separated. And we read these things all throughout the New Testament. Christ is the head of the church. And, and nowadays, people look at this in a figurative sense, and, and, and that's a worldly perspective. However, it's very much literal. We are the literal body of Christ. And I'll explain what I mean. Christ as the head. Literal does not mean physical. It, it literally is how Christ has manifested himself in this present day and age. Christ revealed himself first in body number one, which his physical incarnation, his attributes, all of his deity were made manifest in the flesh. And God was visible in human history. And Christ revealed himself again, a second time, in body number two, which is his spiritual incarnation. His body is the church, the corporate assembly of believers who are indwelled by God in order to make God visible in human history once more. The church is the literal, literal, literal living manifestation of Jesus Christ and Christ as the head of his body. Many so-called Christians today seem to want to separate, separate Christ's head from his body. They want Jesus without the body. They want Jesus without his church. They think the church is judgmental or it's old-fashioned or it's obsolete these days. And the opposite is also true. There are those who want just the body. They want the church. They want the gifts. They want the power. They want to be centered all around them instead of Christ. And I think many of us have witnessed that. Possibly both sides. But there's nothing that can separate Christ from his church. Christ from his body. We are totally unified, like I said, totally inseparable, totally indivisible, and perfectly exclusive. You cannot have one without the other. Please turn, if you would, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we'll start at verse 1. In this passage, Jesus has a very similar illustration to the body. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus said this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And here's the, here's the last part. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He 
who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. You can't be a Christian apart from him, which means you can't be a Christian apart from his body, which means you can't be a Christian apart from his church. And we understand that there are, there's times where it, it's difficult finding a solid body of believers. It's difficult to find a, tr- a church that is preaching the truth of his word. We understand these things. Again, as the church, we are one with Christ. We are his body. He is in us and we are in him. That is found all throughout the New Testament as well. You don't have to, you don't have to turn there, um, but I will read them. John 14, 18 through 20, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live in you. You will live also. In that day, you know that I am the Father. I am... I, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Matthew 18, 4 through 5. Whoever, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And again in Matthew 25... 31 through 40. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here's the main point. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see when, and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. There's no other, there's no more scripture that I can give you that lays it out so clearly. So it's clear that we are one with Christ, one body, many members, inseparable. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you guys can go ahead and turn there now, Paul moves to his next point by presenting two truths pertaining to the body of Christ. How you are entered into the body of Christ and how you are then used and filled for the body of Christ. Verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, unfortunately, there has been some confusion on this word baptism for quite some time. Some denominations will tell you that water baptism is required for salvation, while others will tell you that you can reach a higher spirituality by being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be able to do all sorts of circus show, sideshow side tricks. But Scripture, as always, brings clarity to this issue. Now keep your finger in 1 Corinthians and turn to Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 11. On the topic of baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is John the Baptist speaking, and he says this, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. So this is John's baptism, and it's simply symbolic of being cleansed. In 1 Peter, the apostle likens our salvation through Christ to that of Noah and his family, their salvation through the ark provided by God. The Lord cleansed the earth and chose eight people to safely bring them through the water while everything else perished. It, so this, this water baptism, it foreshadows Christ's death and His burial and His resurrection, but we know that these things are symbolic. They are, they are not what saves you, but we do it because Jesus was baptized and we were commanded to baptize as a symbol of our confession of faith. But let's read on, because that's John's baptism. This finishes up verse 11. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now these, these are Christ's baptisms. While John's is symbolic, Christ's is very, very real. John baptizes through the medium of water for repentance. Christ baptizes believers, people for, who meant for salvation. He baptizes them through the medium of the Holy Spirit. And then those who are meant for judgment, they are baptized through the medium of fire. The Holy Spirit isn't what baptizes you. It's Christ and full immersion into His body that baptizes you. The Father sent the Son. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our helper. Like I said earlier in our prayer, He is not a genie that grants you your every wish. He is not a muscle that you can grow stronger to make you a more powerful being And Him being inside of you does not make you a little God. These are the lies of Satan. And they're used to take our eyes off of Christ and put them back on ourselves. The great deceiver. And there's also some strange obsession. I've talked to this about this with a few of you guys. There's a strange obsession these days with self-proclaimed Christians and fire. 
there are videos and social media posts all over the internet of people praying for God's fire to come onto them. Praying for God's fire to come down onto their church and come down onto their people. And I don't know if about you guys, what, I don't know what the Bible they're reading, but fire is bad. Fire destroys. When fire comes down, it's not a good thing. And to be fair, these people may be praying for fire to come down in reference to this experience at Pentecost. Of course, this is taking the text out of context with a pretext, and we'll talk about that shortly. But as for baptism is concerned, when it involves fire, it is bad. Now let's look at that very next verse as John the Baptist is speaking about Christ and how he will baptize with fire. Verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. That's his body. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I mean, is there any doubt that fire is bad? I don't think so. The truth is everyone will be baptized by Christ. Everyone. Every soul that was ever created will be baptized by Christ. The question is, by what means will you be baptized? Now, back in 1 Corinthians, I'm doing, I'm, you guys are doing some biblical gymnastics with the pages, I understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into the body, into one body. So Paul's argument is here is that there is one, one Spirit, one Spirit. And through that one Spirit, by Christ, we are all baptized in one baptism, His believers, into one body. That is the body of Christ. And if you look at 13b, the later half of 13, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, it's easy for us to overlook the inclusion of Greeks and Gentiles into the body of Christ, but we, we need to understand how this happened. Of course, we know that it was the blood of Christ that had the power to save, but there was this, a specific event that took place in history where the Spirit was made manifest and was poured out on all mankind, as Paul says, to drink of one Spirit. Turning your Bibles to Joel, this is a difficult book to find. It's only about three chapters, so it's really, really short. Um, so if you turn a little bit too far, you'll miss it both ways. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It will come about... After this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your younger men will see visions. Even 
on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This prophecy was fulfilled nearly 800 years after this was written. And it was recorded in the book of Acts. We all know of the event of Pentecost. So let's turn to Acts now. And I know Pentecost is in chapter 2, but let's start a little bit earlier in in chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are the final words spoken of our Lord before He ascended. This is Jesus speaking here. In verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be with you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all and in all Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up and they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. So our Lord in his final moments that he spoke that he was on this earth spoke to the apostles, and he gave them four subjects. Four subjects that, interestingly enough, the book of Acts follows as the Great Commission. The Great Commission wasn't completed in the book of Acts, but it's interesting to note that the four subjects, or you could call them people groups that Jesus names here, are all reached before the end of this book. So in chapter 1, the disciples are told to go and wait in Jerusalem where they will receive the Holy Spirit. That's subject 1 of that commission from Christ. So turn over to chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house and they were sitting, where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they resist, rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now this is the original Pentecost uh, event that we're all familiar with. And in fact, verse 16, the Apostle Peter confirms that this was in fact the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the prophet Joel had spoken of. If you, you can look over there and you can see it yourself where he wrote it in. But keep in mind, just as Jesus had commanded them, this took place in Jerusalem and they were all there for a Jewish feast. So that day, 3,000 Jews received the Holy Spirit and were baptized into the body of Christ. And you might think that this was the one and only outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that this was the Pentecost, this was the event. But this was just one of those people groups that Jesus had spoke of there in chapter 1. And he, Jesus gave them four. Jerusalem obviously represents Jewish people. But what about Judea? What about Samaria? What about the remotest part of the earth? I'm I'm reading in the uh, New American Standard 95 version. Um, So yours might not say remotest. It might say something else. But 
This morning, I want to show you that there were actually four Pentecost-type events that took place in the book of Acts, each taking the subject locations that Jesus had commissioned. And despite that, what the Pentecostals say, these outpourings of the Holy Spirit are not commonplace events, but are one-time miraculous events that served a purpose to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll make that argument today. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So it's no secret that the Jews and the Samaritans had an estranged history. The Samaritans were sort of a mixed breed of Jew. And so when the same outpouring witnessed by the Jews at Pentecost fell upon the Samaritans, it revealed that the body of Christ has extended beyond Israel. So now we have two Pentecost events one to the Jews in Jerusalem, and one to the Samaritans in Samaria. The next outpouring of the Spirit takes place in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And this is after a vision from the Lord uh, for, for Peter. He was visited by a man sent to him uh, named Cornelius. So three men were sent by Cornelius and, and visited Peter. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Now, Cornelius belonged to a group known as the God-fearers or the God-worshippers. And these, these, this, these groups were Gentiles, but they had converted to Judaism. They had followed all the Jewish rites and traditions and were basically considered Jews, except for the fact that they, were, they had not submitted to circumcision. So these are Gentiles who converted to Judaism but did not get baptized. And in this next text, you'll see that they were referred to as Gentiles because, like the Samaritans, they, uh, the God-fearers were not accepted into the Jewish society. And Peter even mentions the unlawfulness of him being in Cornelius' home. So let's read starting in verse 44. Just a little bit further down in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All of those. 
all of those, all who were listening. I want to take a note here. All means that the Holy Spirit fell upon all, not haves and have-nots. Some people don't receive, it's not that some people don't receive the Holy Spirit and some people do. In every single one of these situations, the Holy Spirit fell on all. Take note on that, and I'll, I'll revisit it here in a minute. Verse 45, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. This is the Pentecost event for the God-fearers or believing Gentiles, which revealed that the body of Christ had extended beyond the Jews, beyond the mixed-breed Samaritans, to the uncircumcised God-fearers. And then listen how Peter responds to this in the next chapter, verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as He did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as, if, as he gave us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted the, to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So now we have three events in the book of Acts where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit takes place to the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans in Samaria, and now the God-fearing believers in Judea. The fourth and final Pentecostal event takes or Pentecost event takes place in chapter 19. So it's a little bit further. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper county, country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. It's important to note that the term disciple does not always mean a Christian disciple. Verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And he said, Into John's. And they said, Into John's baptism. So these were Ephesians who had heard about the baptism through water, but were not converted Jews nor Christians. And they likely had an idea of God but was likely, it was likely rooted in paganism, similar to what we read all throughout the Corinthians, for, or uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, because they, they were from Ephesus. So verse 4 tells us, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, 
telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were all, in all about 12 men. And now we have our fourth and final outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And no doubt these Ephesians represent the final people that Christ commissioned his apostles to reach, revealing that the body of Christ has extended beyond the Jews, beyond the Samaritans, beyond the God-fearers, and can now reach all people, all Gentiles, people who have not converted to Judaism everywhere by the sovereign will of God. In my opinion, our Pentecostal friends has a far, far too low view of what took place at Pentecost. They lessen it down to a show rather than seeing the real power of, of, of God as the apostles saw. The power of God's sovereign will at work reconciling, reconciling the sins of the world through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what they were physically witnessing. Not just a bunch of show and magic tricks. This was true power that blew the apostles' mind because they thought, oh, well, this is only for the Jews. Wait, no, it's not. It goes far beyond that. Showing us that, as in verse 13 of our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they belong. They all have a place. There are no haves and have-nots, like I said earlier. There may be the mature and the immature, but they are of one spirit, of one baptism, and of one body. Of course, we know that sanctification and maturity doesn't happen instantly. This takes time. And in fact, it's literally a lifetime of work for the Lord to complete His work in us. We understand these things. And as we know, the Corinthian church, as well as local bodies today, have some major divisions. The Corinthians, for instance, were divided over church leadership and open sin in the church. They were divided over their freedoms in Christ, and they were divided over communion. And here in verse 14, we see that they are divided over spiritual gifts as well. Paul even states in the very, very beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, you are blessed, talking to the Corinthians, you are blessed with speech and knowledge and are not lacking in any gift. You have them all, highly blessed. And yet they are here divided over those very blessings. And this is not how the body of Christ is designed to function. So Paul again presents the illustration of the human body. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is verse 14 through 17, so these will go quick. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this re reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? This is envy that's running through the Corinthians. They are desiring the more extravagant, showy gifts. And it's a clear indication of the Corinthians' carnality. And obviously there are some gifts that are more front and center in ministry, while others are more behind the scenes. But let's look at this final part of our passage today verse 18 and 19, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? When you doubt the gifts within you, you doubt the one who put them there. You're questioning him. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows your strengths, and he knows your weaknesses, and he knows your abilities, and he knows your heart. He knows where you'll be more tempted to make it about yourself rather than about him. Because he is the molder and you are the clay. And you cannot question him and say, why have you made me this way? We all have our place in the body of Christ, and the Corinthians did too. But that's only if you are, by one spirit, been truly baptized into him, into his body, into his church. Our jobs as leaders, preachers, pastors, elders... Our job is not to read the Bible to you. Our job is not to give you your weekly dose of church. You are the church. These walls mean nothing. We can meet outside. You are the church, and our job as leaders and elders and pastors and preachers is to serve you and to train you and equip you not to be used in my ministry or Pastor Mike's ministry, but your ministry. Because God has a purpose and a gift that he's given you, maybe multiple gifts. But our job as leaders is to edify you to help you grow and then your obedience not to not to submit to me or to submit to pastor michael but to submit to the word of god your ability to receive what you hear preached from us what comes straight from the preaching of the word of god 
and put the work, put that to work in your own life and use it to serve the Lord, that edifies us and that builds us up and we build you up and you build other believers up and that is how the church is built up and that is how the church is strengthened and that is how the church is edified. We cannot separate ourselves from the body of Christ. We can't be alone in this world. We can't do it on our own. Lean on your brother and lean on your sister. And let's pull in close and tight and love each other in a way that this world could never define what love is. If we love in that manner, and we truly are salt and light in this world.